Welcome to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast from wealthmanagement.com focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. I'm Diana Britton, Managing Editor of wealthmanagement.com, and in this podcast, we explore some of the struggles and personal development issues facing advisors and financial services professionals, and how to get to a place of healing for mind, body, and spirit. Hello and welcome to the latest episode of the Healthy Advisor podcast and thanks for joining us. As you may know, this is the podcast focused on financial advisor health and well-being and today's guest definitely counts on that score. While he's not an actual advisor, he is in the industry and uh, you know knows the wealth management space up, down, and sideways. I'm actually quite close to him. He's um, one of my colleagues here at wealthmanagement.com. His name is Davis Janowski. He's our senior technology editor uh, here at Wealth Management. He was once referred to as a minor minor celebrity by industry <laughs> publication RA Biz when he left Investment News in 2013 to join Robo Startup Wealthfront. Celebrity status aside, Davis has spent over 20 years covering technology starting with PC Magazine in 1999 and and then later at Investment News, of course. Uh, He also spent two years as a senior analyst covering digital wealth management for Forrester Research. Davis, thank you so much for being on the podcast. I'm really excited about this one. Thanks for for inviting me, Diana. I'm I'm kind of looking forward to it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, a lot of the folks in this industry know Davis well, um, you know, you might have seen pictures of him on Twitter uh, or Instagram, on the Hudson River, leading kayak tours of New York City, or stand up paddleboarding with his dog Pepper. Right? Yep. Pepper. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, many of you, you know, may know a little bit about Davis's story, uh, his history. You know, he grew up in the Deep South in the Panhandle of Florida, in Tallahassee, and and that's how he developed his passion for the outdoors and being on the water. You know, sometimes you might hear a Southern drawl slip out here, but, um, you know, f- fewer fewer folks know Davis's full story and his battle with depression, and he's going to open up about that today, um, perhaps for the first time, Davis? Yeah, other than, than family and friends, you know, people I've known over the years who I've seen struggling and wanted to share some of my story to to help them or help help with family members. Yeah, it's the first time I've ever talked publicly about it for sure. Yeah. And so, you know, we, we really appreciate this. Um, I think it's going to be great. Tell us about, you know, take us back uh, to when you first sort of learned that you had depression or, you know, sort of thought that there was some kind of mental illness going on. Well, you know, as a kid, I felt, you know, on and off, I had, I didn't know it was depression at the time, but, but looking back after everything I've sort of been through in the, in the years, I know there was times when I was probably depressed, but first time I really, the, even the word depression never came up with me between me and like a, a mental health professional was when I was 24. I knew, I knew something was wrong, but I, you know, I lacked any knowledge or you know, really any understanding of depression or, or the science behind mental illness. Um, this was, uh, this was 1993 and like you said, I'm from the deep South and there's still, you know, such a stigma to anything related to mental illness. Mm. I didn't really believe I I had a mental illness until about a year later. And so there was sort of a, a lot that went on in that, that first year, both me not really coming to grips with it or understanding it. 
but it was a year later that I tried to to take my own life. So what? Uh, I mean, take us take us back to that time, Davis. Uh, I know you were living in Syracuse, and you know what do you think sort of led to um, the depression kind of deepening during that time? Well, it was a year. It was the year before I actually tried to take my life, and it's um it's a pretty long story. So so bear with me. And this is one of the things about depression and really any diagnosis of mental illness. There there there's not generally sort of a quick. It can be a quick depression, just reading off a list, a list of symptoms for depression, but lots of the other mental illnesses in addition to it, it's it's even more difficult to diagnose. And if someone without, you know, a clear history of it or a family history, it's probably reluctant to 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 admit to themselves that they have something that mm. is seemingly that that serious. And so I had moved from sunny Florida, you know, where I'd been born and raised to uh, upstate New York to Syracuse with a girlfriend. And I, I was, I was 22 at the time and, you know, it was both an exciting time and also a, a sort of real adjustment. Everything was different there from, from the weather and the climate. It was also the rust belt and uh, the economy was just in a shambles there. It was a recession the recovery. When we had one a couple of years later, it was, it was even called a jobless recovery. A lot of people in our business would, would do well to study that recession and the phenomenon behind it. But anyway, I worked a mix of a few different miserable part-time jobs over the next two years after I moved down there and got accepted to. I, I thought I would probably, I knew Syracuse had a great uh, journalism program and I, I ended up applying to and being accepted there. And my plan was really just to to, to do it all. I, I tried to hold down a couple of part-time jobs while I was taking a full course load there. Um, I didn't want to take out any loans. And one of the jobs was... Uh, a professional position at a at a university hospital, a research center there, and it pay, pay, paid pretty well and had some benefits, and didn't want to give it up. Um, and it was also mostly night and weekend shifts, which uh, contemplating going back to grad school, it seemed like a great thing at the time, but it was also a fairly high stress job. Mm. You know, growing growing up, I had never had any major illnesses. Period. I, I I'd broken a couple bones over the years, but that was it. And being from the deep south, you know, we really shied away from discussions of of mental illness. And it was not until after my suicide attempt that I had ever, you know, heard of my great grandmother and her extreme melancholia. Um, she had had these bouts of deep depression, and they had literally kept her kind of shut inside and locked up for months at a time. This was back in the early 1900s, but you know, as a kid, no one had ever talked about these things. Um, mm. And so, anyway, I had my first bout of, of depression uh, in November of 1993, and during the first year. Of grad school. I know now, many years later, that for me, you know, depression it seemed to be triggered by like se severe mental stress and you know things that go along with it, like a, a lack of sleep, probably a lack of sunlight up there. There's a lot uh, when when winter descends. It's very very different from sunny Florida. Yeah. Um, and as I was working and uh, both working and and taking a full course out of grad school, you know, I didn't get enough exercise and I wasn't eating right and. Then, Really, I also just developed sort of a lack of an appetite at all. And as the symptoms got worse, um, the, the worst one for me, and when I've had bouts, none of them as bad as, as these, but when I've had them since, uh, inability to concentrate is, and, and not being able to sleep is really the worst thing. And back then, my girlfriend, who's living with me at the time, she urged me to go to the, the University Health Center. And, you know, I was reluctant, um, but I did. And I saw a psychologist there. And it was the first time I'd ever spoken to one in my life. I was terrified and I was scared about being judged. Uh, I did help templar temporarily, but I kept um, it kept getting worse after I left because you know nothing had really been resolved and I didn't 
get started on meds or anything. So anyway, I, I, I studied for a few more days. I had this major exam coming up called law of the press and it was just, and it was an essay exam and I'd been studying for weeks and I knew I was prepared, but I got into the, the class and, and sat down to take the test and I just drew an absolute blank. I, I hadn't been getting any sleep and I, I was just completely flummoxed and nothing like that had ever happened to me before. I really sheepishly went up to my professor after sitting there at my desk for, you know, an entire hour, hour and a half trying to think of, of stuff hmm. and uh, told her I, I, I drew a blank. I tried to explain it to her, um, but she was very understanding. And she, she, she said, you know, we'll come back Friday. I'll give you a makeup exam. And that was, that gave me some temporary relief, but that very same night, I was supposed to leave and take a friend of mine, uh, a fellow student in the journalism program. She had no car. We had worked on this for months, lining up um, interviews with a couple of uh, editors, editors-in-chief um, at Backpacker and for me and Runner's World for her. And, you know, I thought, gosh, I should cancel these. But, man, it took us all this time to get these set up. She didn't have a car. I would put her behind. I felt terrible. So I drove us there couple hours away and I had set up staying with some relatives. I didn't, I got lost along the way. I got her to her hotel. I got to my relatives at midnight. And these are, these are some great aunts and uncles who are really old. Anyway, another sleepless night. And I go mm -hmm. in and, and interview this professor and I thought it went terrible. Ended up okay. I was able to kind of complete my work months later from just what I did, but it was terrible. Um, I ended up just even worse. And I went back a day, a couple of days later, I talked to that psychologist at the health center again. And she, you know, they have sort of a script that they go through when, you know, looking at depression. And I only realized this later, but one of the questions is, are you, you thought about hurting yourself or are you feeling suicidal? And I responded, yes. And that sort of changed my life yeah, dramatically. I, at that point she said, well, it's out of my hands. I have to take you to a hospital. And again, mm. you know, what, everything I just said that, um, you know, I'd never been in a hospital for anything other than have a cast put on. And here they were driving me to a, a psychiatric emergency room. And that was, the doors were locked. There were several people that I'm pretty sure now with my better understanding of the mental illnesses that were homeless and schizophrenic and brought in. And, you know, I just mm -hmm. felt like I was completely not, I didn't belong there. Yeah, sure. And uh, I guess another half hour or so later, a psychiatrist came in. He was the emergency room attending, and he took a look at me and talked to me, went through the the typical questions one asks about depression, and um, said, oh, you're depressed. I'm writing you a script. You, you, you need to stay here overnight, but we'll probably let you go home tomorrow if there's someone that can come pick you up, and you should get you know some therapy and Okay, see ya. And that was very traumatic for me too. This idea that now I'm I'm mentally ill. Had to call my then girlfriend who was out of town, and she and another friend came and picked me up the next morning. It was there. There was a lot from there. You know, I, my father ended up flying into town. He had no real understanding of any of this. Didn't know how to help me. Um, my HMO sent me to see a, a clinical social worker a few times, um, and really that point it was just boiled down to stress and if I could just get some relief. So I took some time off from my jobs and anyway, I, I contemplated leaving on a medical leave of absence, but I, you know, despite getting the paperwork filled out, I, I ended up tearing it up. My dad went nuts. <laughs> mm. He ended up flying back home. I limped along. I made it through that semester. Um, I even went home to Florida during the intervening summer and had an internship and was back in the sunshine and things got a little better. 
then I went back to school in the fall and, uh, uh, everything came back again. The, the mm -hmm. depression recurred and this time it just felt so hopeless that uh, I ended up trying to take my life because I really felt like that no one could help me. I wasn't seeing an actual therapist. I was not on meds any longer at that point. And everything just seemed hopeless. And that's really what led me up to it. Yeah. And what saved you that day from taking your own life? How did you come back from that? Um, and I apologize because this will be hard for some people to hear. Um, but I think it's better for some people to hear it, especially if they have loved ones suffering from this to see where it can go. But, you know, I'd, I'd had a series of bad days. And this is, again, in the November of uh, the next year. It's uh, I'm in a moved back my my then girlfriend had graduated from law school and was off looking for a job. And I think it was Chicago she'd moved to. And uh, I was there by myself in a basement apartment in Syracuse. And it's already a couple inches of snow on the ground mm. on my one window looking out into the back. And uh, it was the same things. Uh, I wasn't working then, but I had all these loans. The depression came back. It got really, really bad. I had exhibited some really strange behavior in that, um, that sort of the worst aspect of depression for me is this sense of hopelessness that you just can't get away from. And you talk to people and you might feel a few moments of um, relief, but it just comes surging back. And so I really wanted something that made me feel calm and happy. And, you know, I'd spent a lot of time up at the Adirondacks, which is an up hour, a couple hours away. And so I threw like an idiot madman. I, I had my car right back up to my front the door of my apartment. I threw all my camping gear in. I drove a couple hours to the Adirondacks thinking that was going to make me feel better. It did not, um, which, you know, I've come to know that that it, nothing will, nothing will make you feel better when you're at that point. Hmm. I made it back. I thought about wrapping my car around um, some telephone poles and light poles and stuff. Hmm. I even tried calling, um, and this is before the age of cell phones. So I had found a, a telephone uh, along the way and got out and a payphone called several friends and my parents and uh, no one picked up, hmm. but I ended up coming back and that night was terrible. And I spoke briefly to my parents and it made me feel better for a little bit, but uh, I got no sleep that night and I got up the next morning and faced it all again. And uh, then I decided to kill myself. So I sat down on my kitchen floor you know, I, you know, I try, I had thought about wrapping my car around something, but I, I thought, and this is just sort of how, how difficult it is to think clearly, you know, I thought, well, what if I end up just paralyzed, you know, everybody's going to have to take care of me and it's just going to be even worse. So what can I do? What can I do? What can I do? So I, I picked up a kitchen knife. I sat down on the floor of my kitchen and I cut my wrists mm -hmm. and, uh, but, uh, you know, part of what saved me that day was, um, well, there were a few things. First was sort of my own inability at that point to think rationally. You know, being otherwise healthy, I realized the, well, the blood from the cuts eventually kind of coagulated. I had not, you know, thought about getting in the shower or the bathtub because, again, I wasn't thinking rationally. But I'd managed to cut through you know, 13 tendons and nerves on both my arms when I did it. Um, and a lot of blood came. But about the same time, the phone rang, and it was one of my my friend that I called the day before returning my call. And at this point, it had been several minutes, and I hadn't lost consciousness. And I'm I'm thinking, my God, I can't even kill myself, right? 
what the hell is wrong with me? Um, and I, I, I was panicked. Um, I picked up the phone and it was him and I was crying and he realized what was going, that something was bad was going on. And he called, you know, I reluctantly told him what I'd done. He called 911 and I was admitted to the, the hospital. The, uh, the EMTs came, he came and I got sent to the hospital. And so mm -hmm. that's really what saved my life that day. Mm. Well, we're, we're, we're so glad that you're here, Davis, and that you got through that. Um, Thank you. And, you know, that uh, you did get the help that you needed eventually. Um, I, I just I want to throw out some some statistics about um, depression in, in the U.S. And, um, you know, I know that it was sort of uh, amplified during the pandemic. The Kaiser Family Foundation reported in February 2021 that almost 40 percent of U.S. adults had symptoms of anxiety or depression during the pandemic, a nearly fourfold increase in the percentage of adults who experienced these issues between January and June 2019. And uh, just some data from the Depression and Bipolar Support Alliance. Depression is the cause of over two-thirds of the 30,000 reported suicides in the U.S. each year. You know, major depressive disorder affects approximately 17.3 million American adults, or about 7.1% of the U.S. population ages 18 and older in any given year. Um, and just some some things that are, you know, a little bit more specific to the financial services industry. Uh, you know, Dr. Alden Cass, he's a, a Manhattan-based clinical psychologist and performance coach. He specializes in treating financial advisors. Um, you know, he has statistics about how stressful this job is, uh, you know, the uh, being a financial advisor specifically, and how advisors are more prone to addiction, depression, obesity, and other things than than folks in other uh, professions. And, um, you know, I was looking at a, a 2013 analysis by eFinancialCareers.com, and they found that psychologists reported an increase in the number of financial sector workers coming to them with depression, uh, ranging from mild to clinical depression, which which could potentially lead to thoughts of suicide. And I know Davis, your, yours was uh, more severe than than others. But can you tell us a little bit about, you know, just jumping ahead a little bit? I know that you, you know, the depression kind of came back. Um, strong again when when you started working at investment news and and then you know you had a hospital stay that sort of helped you get more of the help that you needed and um and get therapy. And I know your now wife Winnie you know, really helped you through that time. Uh, but take us back then and and sort of what um what did you sort of realize about uh you know depression and anxiety um you know during that hospital stay. Well, I should back up just a little bit and kind of explain what led immediately up to it. Um, yeah. Jim Pavia, who's now over at CNBC, he was the uh, the editor-in-chief of Investment News uh, back then. And he had recruited me away from uh, PC Magazine, where I'd been for about eight years. And he had this, uh, he had vision to realize that um, just about everything in this new newfangled RIA industry, you know, re revolved around technology. And so he had started looking for someone to be a full-time tech reporter. And I think it was, I was really the first industry full-time tech reporter. There were other people that were covering technology, but they, they weren't journalists. Um, and so anyway, I, I agreed. I came over 
And really the first two years for me were insane. I had told Jim at the time he was interviewing me that, you know, I had no background in financial services. And uh, he said, that's okay. We'll teach you that. And mm-hmm. he, you know, taught me a great deal. And there were other editors there that were helpful. And certainly a lot of people in the the industry gave me their time to, to learn. But uh, I was having to produce stories and travel a lot. And it was, uh, it was just a very, very, very stressful time. And it's it was the first time kind of reached the levels of stress I had had back more than a decade before. And I had had, you know, some therapy between then and I'd been on and off drugs that whole time, mostly on drugs, various SSRIs, which are the sort of typical ways that uh, depression is treated. But at that point, I was really just seeing someone for med checks and to get a prescription. At that point, I really, I was of the impression, and there were still a lot of doctors that really thought depression was more a biological uh, illness. No one really... Mm -hmm even today really understands all the mechanisms around it, but they know it's, you know, a lack of enough SSRI, which are called either serotonin reuptake inhibitors or dopaminergic reuptake inhibitors and the synaptic gaps between your, the neurons in your brain. That's, that's awful lot of information, but basically they know people that don't have enough of those, those, those things in their brain at a given time are likely to de- develop depression. And, mm. uh, it got bad and, uh, you know, I was ex- back to feeling extreme hopelessness and was unable to sleep and started to feel suicidal again. Um, and I can't say enough about the support that Jim Pavia provided me and my family. He he had had tragedy in his life. I think that was part of it, other than just being very loyal and someone who, as a manager, really put his, his um, employees, the ones that worked hard and were you know, doing what they were supposed to be doing, he would go to the moon for you. And so when I yeah. ended up telling him I, I, how bad I was and he could see it changes in my behavior, um, we agreed that I, he helped me get him a medical leave of absence, which was something that was provided there at Crane, which is the company that owned investment news. And he, he was there, he was there for me. He was there for my wife and my family. He constantly checked on me. I had gotten, I got my leave. I got checked into, um, Tish, which is the NYU's inpatient uh, psychiatric uh, facility. Mm-hmm. And I was there for weeks. And the problem for me at this point was that none of the drugs, they, they tried switching me to a couple of different drugs and, and even combinations of drugs and nothing was working. Um, so I, the treatment of last resort is what's called electroconvulsive therapy, ECT. And again, they, they don't really fully understand the mechanisms going on when they provide it, but they know most people that have, that aren't responding to, to medications anymore will have some uh, positive result with it. And so I started going through that and eventually got started to improve and uh, they let me out. They, um, I ended up continuing ECT as an outpatient in another hospital and, and gradually got back to being myself went back to investment news full-time and actually things got a lot better. And Jim was there for me. I ended up being quite successful. And it was during that that period from, you know, I guess that was around 2010 until I left in 2013 that I got to be pretty well known in the industry and, and earned mm-hmm. that quote minor celebrity status. <laughs> but, uh, but it was really a combination of, of therapy. And I, I got a, a new therapist. It's the same therapist that I see today. Um, and eventually started on a drug that seems to, well, I haven't had a recurring serious bout of clinical depression since. There have been some ups and downs, but nothing like that. 
Yeah. I mean, I want to talk a little bit about kayaking and stand-up paddleboarding. And, um, you know, I know that that's, um, you know, helped you um, just improve the quality quality of your of your life overall, you know. Um, uh, so tell us about how that came into your life and and helped with the depression. Well, really, um, like I said, I was born and raised in Florida, and uh, uh, my dad had me out on the water from the time I was little. You know, my first <laughs> my first canoeing trip, first canoeing and whitewater trip, was on a little Tennessee River while he was in grad school up uh, in Knoxville, Tennessee. And he wanted to um, paddle this stretch of whitewater on the Little Tennessee before the TVA, the Tennessee Valley Authority, turned on the dam that they had built. So I was six, threw me in a canoe with him, and uh, that was my first, you know, introduction to paddling. And then, and we eventually went back to Florida after he finished. And I, you know, I paddled every every river in the panhandle of, of North Florida, which is known as the Redneck Riviera. I've been on the water my whole life too, and in power boats as well. I'm a, I've been a, a scuba diver for 30 years and a spear fisherman. And before I, before I left Florida, followed my girlfriend who was studying law school. I'd, I spent basically every weekend on the water doing something. And so when we, when I got up to Syracuse, I switched to the mountains. And then when I years later ended up in, in uh, New York, I really realized it was, not necessarily a great place for me from that standpoint. And I mm. thought, where can I get on the water? And I met these old guys in the one boathouse, which is a real, real ramshackle place back then down on Pier 26 in lower Manhattan. And it's mm. called the downtown boathouse. And these old guys exposed me to uh, kayaking. And uh, as a young, a young journalist, I couldn't afford a, a hard hold kayak, but um one of them at that boathouse had literally written a book on what's called uh, folding sea kayaks. And they're basically come in a bag and you unfold it and you put it together and you take it out and you come home and you, uh, you take it apart, put it in the bag and store it back in your closet. So I got my first of those and proceeded to kayak for the next decade, really more or less on my own. I joined a couple of volunteer groups as a guide and uh, basically got to know all the waters um, in every direction here in New York. And Got to know some folks at uh, my local, There's a, happens to be a boat house just a few blocks from me called Manhattan Kayak Company. And I got to know them. They got to know my my level of understanding of the river and the currents and all that. And they asked me to be a guide. So last few years I have done that. And uh, it really just provides the balance to my life. Um, it really replicates kind of what, what I got from childhood when I would go outdoors. And it's just, you know, wide open spaces and kind of ability to let your mind go um can also be pretty exciting when the weather is challenging which i actually enjoy kind of physical stress has never been a, a thing for me in terms of the depression but it's exciting and uh and that provides all of it in spades i, I also love teaching people the history of uh the area i've gotten to know that over the last 20 years too there's people forget that new york is a uh, one of the great port cities of the world. The whole West side was once full of piers and ships of every description from sailing ships to steamships to then modern liners and freighters and et cetera. And, and most of that is all gone now and uh, kind of looks very different. And we've built this beautiful park along the West side. Then uh, it's now an interesting place to go and then point out what used to be there. And so I, I take a lot of joy from doing that. And so it's my it's what I do on weekends, kind of a second life on weekends, a second profession. 
Yeah, I, I just think it's awesome. I mean, um, you know, every, uh, you know, week Davis uh, is sharing with our team just the journeys that he goes on and uh, the places that he sees. And, um, you know, he'll he'll go out in, uh, you know, very cold temperatures, even, um, you know, during the winter in New York uh, can get pretty cold. But, um, you know, he braves it because it's just something you love. And um, I, I think it's it's great. Um what um you know what is it about being out on the water that connects with you mm. i don't know it, it it's it's something carried on from my my childhood i think um it can be it can it could go from being very peaceful to kind of crazy but when when it's peaceful there's just nothing there's nothing like it on land, especially in New York. You know, it was a real culture shock for me to come from a, you know, a mid-sized town where everyone drove cars uh, in Florida uh, to eventually live in New York, where most everyone, at least in Manhattan, ends up selling their car and taking the subway. And uh, we live just off, we live in Hell's Kitchen, just off Times Square. And we have lived here for 20 years. It was uh, a great spot for my wife, who's also a reporter and needed to be able to get around quickly because we're right mm. near the Times Square station. But we're also near Times Square. And it got to where on weekends I would tell her, you know, if we're going somewhere, do not plan on me going through Times Square. I can't stand it. It's just for those that don't really know <laughs> Times Square uh, pre-pandemic. And it's almost gotten back to the way it was. It's just cheek by jowl, elbow to elbow people. And it's... Uh, it's tough for me. I, I'm I'm not claustrophobic, but I almost feel claustrophobic sometimes when I'm there in other parts of crowded Manhattan. So it's the the water's the opposite of that. Also gets me exposed to nature. You know, one of my I do love to go south and to the lower harbor, but I also love to go north and just a few miles. You know, it's seven miles to the GW Bridge, and over on the Jersey side, it's are the Palisades, the New Jersey Palisades, and there's big beautiful cliffs for those that haven't seen them and forest down to the water and so you go from this extreme urban crowded uh, to a place where i can hear the crickets and the frogs and the birds um see see the change of season and the and the trees see ospreys see bald eagles all within a few miles of uh, of new york so it's that and then I said, we've seen wildlife the last few years the water quality's gotten a lot better i'm also a volunteer with the billion oyster project which is helping to improve the water quality and so things have come back we've had whales come up into the to hudson not, uh, right right here off of where we live seals and dolphins and uh even 10 years ago i was off the battery in one of my kayaks and it scared the heck out of me at the time but i, I got to see a sturgeon a six-foot sturgeon had breached which they often do they don't really know why wow. but it came out of the water a few feet from my kayak and this is right off right off the battery you know right off manhattan huge fish and uh and that's probably the biggest wildlife I've seen, but it was, it's always stuck in my mind. So it's the wilderness right here at our door, doorstep. And so for me, it's, it's been a lifesaver and a balance to, to the daily routine. And it's extreme. I know some people are fine with just going for a jog after work, but uh, for me, it's, it's a necessary to get away. Yeah. Um, well, you know, if you ever meet Davis out there, uh, you know, ask him about his kayaking, stand up paddle boarding adventures. Um, he loves to talk about it. Um, but I'm afraid we're just about out of time. 
But I'd like to thank my guest, Davis Janowski, for being on the podcast and, and opening up here about his struggles with mental illness. And um, Davis, uh, it's just, I, I've learned so much about you today. It's It's been great. Well, thanks. Thanks for having me on. Um, I'm glad to share. I guess I would close with, uh, you know, part of why I wanted to do it was, um, it was very sad to me that a, a couple of my daughter, who's 17 now, a couple of her classmates, one that she had gone to school with from elementary school um, over the last year committed suicide. And it's, there's nothing, there's nothing sadder to me than that. And it's preventable. Mm -hmm. And all it takes is some understanding, being able to ask why. Um, and especially in teenagers, they have their whole life in front of them. And the American Foundation for Suicide Prevention has some great resources on its website for how to talk to teens and for how, te how teens can talk to one another, because oftentimes they're going to open up to other teens before they'll open up to their parents. But some great resources there. Um, the CDC has some great resources on how to recognize depression, um, how to find help if you need it, and for for teens to, you know, they, they've changed a lot with social media and everything that's happened with the pandemic. So there's some resources uh, now that are, that are very helpful to, to parents, teachers, friends to recognize signs and symptoms and, and others, how to get them help. And it's mainly, mainly if there's nothing else you can do, if you hear someone that you care about and they, it sounds like they're depressed, just listen to them. Just listen. Mm. That's the mm -hmm. main thing. That's a, that's great advice. And, um, thank you for, for that Davis. Uh, we'll, we'll put, uh, many of these resources in the show notes so you can, uh, turn to them yourself, uh, if you need to, um, if you'd like to reach out to Davis, you can, uh, reach out to him, uh, via email at davis.c.janowski.us, the number one at informa.com. We'll put this in the show notes as well. And, um, you know, look him up on Twitter and, um, you know, you can see some of those pictures of him out on the Hudson. If you have a struggle yourself, if you wish to share your experiences and help others in similar situations, please feel free to reach out to me at diana.britton at informa.com. I'd like to thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor. If you've not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This is Diana Britton reminding you that where there's healing, there is hope. We'll see you next time. Thank you for listening to The Healthy Advisor, a podcast focused on advisors' personal well-being and healing. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guest and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of wealthmanagement.com. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only. The content is not intended to be a substitute for professional advice. Always seek the advice of your healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding your particular situation.